Welcome to another episode of Axel of Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Cat Bailey. Joining me as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, everybody. Uh, it's been a bit of a busy week this week, hasn't it, Kat? Yes, we're coming just minutes after BlitzCon, where they announced the game that everybody's been waiting for, Warcraft 3 Remastered. Yes, I was certainly waiting for that. Yes. Warcraft 3 is the greatest real-time strategy game ever made, don't you know? Oh, God. Just thinking of real-time strategy games makes me cry. <laughs> I can't well, do it was, uh, it was the game that gave us World of Warcraft, because... That's true. That- it was much closer to RPG than you would ever guess, because mm-hmm. in effect, they made a competitive RPG. Like, you had to do grinding uh, at the beginning of the game by fighting mobs. You would get treasure and items, and then ultimately you would have your big battle. It's just that instead of having uh, a small party, you had an army. Oh, okay. Yeah. So uh, I can see how that's very um, that would lead into World of Warcraft. It also had the best story. Um, out of it and was and I'm always kind of sad that World of Warcraft ultimately ruined Warcraft three, but uh, more importantly though, uh, Diablo three for mobile got announced uh, and I think you called it the best troll since 2012. <laughs> was that Diablo three or was that something else? I wasn't paying too much attention to the the presentation, but it was oh, it's Diablo's- not Diablo three. It's taking place between Diablo two and three, so it's technically a new game. It fills in the gaps of the lore. Oh yeah, okay, yeah, that is definitely like a troll right out of two thousand twelve when we were all getting these sequels, quote unquote, on mobile that nobody asked for, and uh, it was a very sad time to be alive. I gotta say that I do not care one whit about Diablo's lore. I mean, yeah, I know people do care about it, but to me, like, it's just all trash mobs and bosses to be killed so they can get better treasure. Yeah, and that's something we'll be talking about today, Diablo 3 on the Switch, but um, that is something I've noticed, is as much as I'm really enjoying playing the game, and it's kind of fun to have the the dialogue text going on because it's so, I don't want to say cheesy, but it's kind of cheesy, and I like it, but it's definitely not a game I'm playing for the story. Yes, we will be talking about Diablo 3's successful transition to the Switch, which I called a essential when I did my article earlier this week. Uh, it's out, I, I believe it's out next week on Nintendo Switch, or it's out right now. I'm not entirely sure. I need to go check the date. We are going to talk briefly about Delta Ruin, which is the follow-up to Undertale, and we have special guest Matt Allen coming on the show to talk about the latest entry of our top 25 RPG list. Um, always, you can find me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia's at Nadia Oxford. Follow US Gamer on all of the channels, US Gamer Net. And check us out at usgamer.net. Uh, we're going to continue on to Delta Rune in a second. But first thing I want to do, Nadia, is acknowledge... Uh, Say happy 15th anniversary to Fire Emblem, which released, uh, as of two days before the release of this podcast, released 15 years ago in North America, 2003, our first exposure to the series, following on from its successful debut in Smash Brothers Melee, though funnily enough, the game they chose had neither Marth nor Roy. Except Roy as a kid at the very end, but yes, um, that was that was always funny too back back in the day. Like just uh, when Melee was out, and there were all these articles on the internet saying, "Who are Martha and Roy? Here's our explainer," because nobody had any idea here. I was writing. Uh, I wrote a nice little retrospective 
about Fire Emblem and why I thought it was the bee's knees back in 2003. Um, and still one of my favorite games of all time. I, Nadia, I'm still unmercifully hooked on Fire Emblem Heroes, unfortunately. I'm sorry, Kat. Yeah, but it's still reasonably fun. It's just also, if I'm not a giant time sink, and if I'm not careful, a giant money sink as well. Yeah, so. that's that's mobile games in general. Um, I'm playing uh, basically a king who did uh, Candy Crush Saga, did a, let's call it a ripoff, or an inspired ripoff of, uh, I don't know if you remember Clash of Heroes, Might and Magic by Ubisoft and Cappy from back in, God, it was 2006 or something like that. Many was, moons ago. Yes, that was a great game, and nobody's really tried to emulate it. You can't even get it on mobile anymore. You can't get it anywhere except on Steam and I think DS. So uh, King ate their lunch and uh, gave us this uh, clone that I'm still playing, and I like it very much, so I understand where you're coming from. That's the dangerous thing about mobile RPGs is that you can just open it up anytime and the next thing you know, you've lost an entire hour. And you're like, what happened to that hour? Yeah, I don't know. I'm going, I'm, I'm going to bed now. Oh, no, I'm not. A lot of people are talking about Dragalia Lost and I am just not that interested in that game. I It is still not available in Canada. That is so weird. It is very weird because we've always yeah, been we were going to have you check it out, but you uh, ultimately were never able to do that. No, and I want to. I love to play it, but uh, and it's funny because uh, Guinea, uh, Canada, and New Zealand are usually guinea pig countries uh, for early releases. But we never got it, and to my knowledge, I don't think New Zealand has it ever either. I think it's just a, a few countries, the U.S. being one. The reason I like Fe or Fire Emblem Heroes is that I recognize all of the characters from the different Fire Emblem games that I've played over the years, and I obviously have my favorites. So. Having 13 permutations of Lindus is nice to me. <laughs> Being able to have an entire team of Ikes is great. They all say, I fight for my friends, one after another after another. I think you can literally have an entire team of Hectors. That's hilarious. Like, I think you can actually have four Hectors. In the, I mean, granted, three of them are fairly similar to one another, but <laughs> no, it's it's pretty ridiculous. Like, it's obvious. Some characters obviously are more popular than others and as a consequence get multiple alts. Yeah, that that's that's a, a that's not to be that's like not surprising at all. Okay, moving on. Let's talk about Toby Fox's new game. It's Delta Ruin. You wrote about it a couple times on the site, and Nadia. It seems to me that while it's not Undertale Two, the game that people really wanted, it was still very good. It still had excellent writing. Yes. Um. It's, uh, I guess uh, we can kind of talk about this freely because it's a, it's a very short game. It's actually chapter one of, uh, of a full project that Toby intends to release someday. Uh, but it, you, should, you should be able to get through it in a few hours, and most people did get through it in a few hours when it released on Halloween. And um, yeah, the game starts off making you kind of think it's Undertale 2. Oh, you're playing a follow-up to Undertale, but... As I, I wrote in my piece that just went up on U.S. Gamer, the signs are there that, no, it is not Undertale 2, and you kind of ignore them at your own peril. So it's uh, definitely a game with great writing, and it still has uh, uh, much of the emotional impact the original Undertale did, although it doesn't screw with your head the way the first Undertale did, so I have to say it doesn't do that yet. Yeah, you're saying that Mercy is a large component of Delta Ruin, but it doesn't make it easy. <laughs> 
No, uh, mercy, of course, is a big part of the first Undertale. Ideally, um, you're supposed to spare the monsters and not fight them, although you do have to fight yes, them. Yes, it's a you... dungeon crawler, only you make friends with the monsters. Yay! Yay! Not quite. Um, if you want to see all the endings, if you want to get all the, the, the lore patched in, uh, you have to uh, both make friends with the monsters and you have to go around killing everything. So it's, it's definitely doesn't make it seem like uh, it's definitely not the kind of game that's trying to shove the whole pacifism message in down my day we killed the monsters now everybody wants to go around making friends with them giving them hugs i mean the friggin millennials <laughs> friggin millennials indeed uh but yeah with uh delta rune uh yes they try to give you the whole well mercy's preferred message early on but you're kind of paired with this girl named Susie who's a jerk and the first thing Susie does is start tearing into monsters with her axe. So you have to keep her on a short leash while also, you know, trying to pacify the monsters you come across. So uh, that's a bit of a challenge. And as you uh, get as you get deeper into the game, and as you actually finish the demo, the uh, the first chapter, uh, you, you really get the impression that whatever Toby Fox has in mind for the final story. It's not going to be nearly quite as clean cut as Undertale's message of pacifism was. So I'm I'm really eager to see where he goes with that. Indeed. So it's been I think three years now since. Yeah, it's been uh, about three years. Wow, that's crazy. It feels like just yesterday that Delta Ruin or the original Undertale came out. Which, by the way, Delta Ruin is just a rearrangement of Undertale's uh, name or characters. An anagram. Yes. That's the word I was looking for. But. With Undertale, why has it held up in the way that it has, Nadia? Why do people love that game so damn much? I think it's because uh, Undertale is still a game with a lot of secrets in it, and I think that's why a lot of people are also excited for Deltarune. Uh, one thing I pointed out, and one thing that Toby did uh, to kind of drum up excitement for Deltarune was he kicked off the game announcement by kind of writing a series of tweets in the style of one of Undertale's most mysterious characters named Dr. Gaster, who is like this kind of this leering skeleton with a creepy-ass smile. And it's believed Dr. Gaster orchestrates a lot of stuff behind the scenes, both in the world of Undertale and, I'm assuming, Deltarune, because there's, there's signs there of that as well. And um, there's just... The characters have a lot of dimensions to them. And I think that's probably part of it. Also, uh... The cosplay scene's always been very strong. There's someone named Vaping Toriel who's always been very popular. <laughs> She's yeah, Toriel and she vapes. It seemed to grab people in a way that a lot of games don't. It, it really resonated with people. And I've often wondered kind of why. And I guess probably because you said of all the secrets, probably because it's so distinct. It has such a distinct look to it. Because mm -hmm. it really makes you kind of sit back and think about the way that you actually approach video games. It's a pretty memorable kind of RPG experience. Yeah, especially since one of the things it does if you play on the PC is uh, it screws with your file. It kind of breaks those uh, JRPG tropes, breaks the, the fourth wall, basically shatters it when you come right down to it. Uh, but this is a game where the bad guy is like kind of kicks things off by calling you out on the actions you take. Uh, in a very kind of psychomantis style, and then will like 
during the climax of the game, like, will, like, close your file and do all these other kind of creepy-ass things. And that kind of sticks with you. All right, Deltarune, now available, and a lot of people are talking about it. You should go check out our coverage on the site. Before we continue on to our Top 25 RPG countdown, Nadia, let's talk about Diablo 3 on the Switch. Is this the first time you're playing Diablo 3? This is definitely the first time I'm playing Diablo 3. I actually got maybe even Diablo uh, in general. Is this your first trip to Diablo? I think I played it like when I was in high school, the first game. But otherwise... Yes, this is the first significant trek into Diablo, and I think I explained this last episode, but when Diablo 3 was a big, big deal, I was kind of busy reviewing the uh, the knockoffs on mobile, like uh, Gameloft's, uh, I think Dungeon Master, I think it's called. It's still up and running. I checked. That's why I think <laughs> it's funny that Diet Blizzard was like, this is the first MMORPG for mobile. I'm like, are you sure? Because I'm pretty no. sure that this has been done a few times on mobile. Yeah, basically. But yeah, this is my first time. This is definitely my first time playing Diablo 3. Wow. So what do you think? Uh, it's a, it is a great deal of fun. And that's uh, not doesn't surprise me very much because I actually did enjoy those mobile knockoffs I reviewed. Uh, they're very much the same idea where you, you hunt the mobs of monsters, you hunt the boss, you follow a story that's kind of, you know, it, it's loose, but it gets the job done. You pick up loot, 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 loot. And of course, this time I don't have to deal with like, hey, buy more energy or, you know, buy this cool starters pack. It's just Wow, what right a thought. You don't have bullshit microtransaction-driven stamina mechanics. Godspeed, yes. That's what your $60 at retail are going to pay buy you. Yeah, there you go. There you get the privilege of not being hassled. So the the main things about the Diablo 3 on Switch is that, I mean, obviously it adds the component of hand, uh, hand being on a handheld portability, but also the fact that uh, for people who have played Diablo 3 multiple times, like myself, uh, it makes Adventure Mode, which is traditionally the post-game of Diablo 3, right out, available right out of the box. And for me, that has been a big deal because when Diablo 3 was announced for Switch, my first thought was, eh, well, okay, that's cool, but there's no way I'm going to play through this again. I've already finished it on PC, PS4, uh, PS3 even, because I was playing with my friends. I've played this campaign multiple times, and maybe I haven't played it as many times as the hardcore faithful who have beaten it on every uh, difficulty level and all that stuff. But I've beaten it enough. And so I'm sitting here thinking, there's no way I'm going to go back. But then they're like, oh, no, Adventure Mode's available right out of the way. I'm like, all right, you got me. And I rolled up a character. And the best thing about Adventure Mode is, yeah, you're basically just doing uh, quests that are pulled straight out of the story, but made into individual like little moments. But it's so damn addictive in in handheld form. Or, like you'll be sitting around waiting, you'll just break out the switch and be like, you knock out on a quest in like the space of four or five minutes, you get a whole bunch of fat loot, and you're like, oh yeah, that's the stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm playing through the campaign right now. I figure I may as well since I've never done it before. Yeah, I uh, rolled up a monk, and I that monk is now like level forty three. Uh-huh. And once I get to like level seventy, that's when the uh, the paragon stuff starts to unlock, and then you can start doing high level dungeons and everything. Uh-huh. And no, ordinarily, that would be something that I would want to do with maybe friends or something. Though you can run them solo, uh, and I just feel like that's just the perfect time waster, right? And mm-hmm. plus, I got some people in my household are who are 
who own Switches and are Diablo fans, and it's just... Oh, that's perfect. It's just the way to play it is sitting there with your Switch. Like, you're all sitting there with your Switches running through dungeons. Ah, it's brilliant. Yeah, and you can, uh, of course, play on the TV with yeah, with multiple controllers. I would not play it on the TV. Yeah, I mean, I it's fine that yet. way, but it's suboptimal, in my opinion. I, like I said, I haven't played it that way yet because handheld is just so perfect for, as you say, the sure. style of gameplay. Yeah, uh, if you play it on TV, first of all, it's just a smidge blurrier than you're going to find on PC or uh, PS4. Uh-huh. Um, you'll get used to it, but it, it does stand out a little bit. Uh-huh. The other thing is when you're managing your inventory, it's much better to play on handheld because you can actually stop and manage your hand your inventory while your friend is doing something else, like, say, oh. managing their inventory. Right. As opposed to playing on TV, you're in a situation <laughs> like, oh, no, stop, I got to manage <laughs> stop, my inventory, stop. and then you're spending all I this time, like, going through your skills, like, getting rid of all of your stuff and everything, and after mm-hmm. a while, that can take forever, especially if you have four players going. Oh, yes. Okay. And then. the other thing is, if you're playing on handheld, you are not bound to one screen, so, mm-hmm. hypothetically, you can split off in different directions uh, on some of the larger areas. Like, it feels like this is the way that Diablo, aside from playing on PC online with friends, this is the way Diablo was meant to be played. Right, right. Unfortunately, I only have one Switch. Boohoo. Oh, poor baby. But yeah. how far are you in Diablo 3's campaign? And what level? Uh, are let's you? see. I am uh, about level, I'm close to level 20, level 19 or level 20. Um uh spoilers like it freaking matters oh sorry i didn't swear spoilers like it freaking matters uh deckard kane just died what oh my god i'm sure he won't be back you know if you call blizzard's headquarters you deckard kane will read out the phone directory to you (laughs) and does he do it in like two two words a minute and i can see that being the case oh yeah he totally does and it's obnoxious (laughs) Uh, here, if, if you want to Blizzard's head office, dial one. No, he literally is like that. Oh my Stay god, that's amazing. And listen. Listen. Oh god. And have you heard the Deckard Kane rap? No, I haven't. Don't. Well, okay, now I put it in your head, so go do it. <laughs> the, that's like the uh, the song, uh, what, 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 what do you want? What, 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 what yeah, do you want? Yeah, yeah. Why it's do you like, keep touching, touching me? Touching me is like that. Yeah. Only worse. I listened to that recently. And it was very cute for about a minute, and then I got a little <laughs> sick of it. <laughs> it kind of goes on. The days of sticking your CD in a CD player and getting the special surprise from the Red Book Audio. Oh, God, like Symphony of the Night and Alucard telling you, like, hey, this is a data CD. You shouldn't be listening to this, but you probably won't listen to me, will you? And it starts playing a really cool song. So what character, what character class did you pick? I picked Demon Hunter. Of course you picked the Demon Hunter. Because you're always an archer. I'm always an archer, and you can have animal companions. I mean, that's the obvious one. You did that in Octopath Traveler as well. I did, yeah. I always go for the archer and the the animal companions. I always play a druid or an elf or something like that. Or a hunter. Yeah. You and I are of a kind, Nadia, because Demon Hunter was the first character that I ever rolled as well. Because I am not a big magic person. When it comes down to it, I want a badass bow with yep. cool area of effect attacks. Which you have with the with the Demon Hunter. Plus, I have like sure this kind of Gatling attack. I forget what it's called, but it's just like rapid fire arrows. I'm good. The the chakra uh, uh, attacks are actually probably the best for the Demon Hunter. The last I checked, anyway. Th- maybe things have changed. Okay, I should keep that in mind. I'm trying to remember what a good example of a chakra attack is. As you is. get the the ruins going. Uh-huh. It becomes kind of your primary 
damage dealer and eventually you're shooting multiple chakras and they're kind of like the windmill stars from um uh from ninja oh, gaiden yeah okay um i think i saw those but i wanted to keep using the rapid fire arrows so i've just been sticking to those <laughs> so like you start throwing them out and they're like buzz saws through enemy formations and then it's pretty amazing to watch it's it's perhaps better than the rapid fire yeah although the rapid fire is just more more satisfying i'm also teamed up with a uh i think a cleric Mm -hmm. yeah so he's all like oh the light is the best and all this other stuff he he never shuts up he's like a paladin right yeah he's a paladin you're right yeah yeah and then do you have the reign of arrows uh not yet oh i love that one because you you press a button and like five billion arrows come down (laughs) on top of enemies and totally knock them out that sounds pretty amazing i look forward to that so i am playing as a monk as i already mentioned because I am all about that dual-wielding life. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the monk is kind of hard to use, especially at the early going, but can be really fun and really satisfying as you level them up and get some of their uh, better abilities. And my my favorite moment so far was when I was like level 25 or something, and I got a legendary weapon that dramatically improved. Um, I forget what the exact ability was, but basically they're spinning their staff and running through enemies like a lawnmower. (laughs) And it powered up that attack so much that I was basically running through them like a freaking scythe going, it was great. I loved it. (laughs) I actually got my first legendary piece of equipment. Just I found under a bush. I don't know where I got it, actually. Under a bush. Like uh, Leoric, whatever his name is, his crown. Um, Mm -hmm. I just... I'm confused because I got one off an enemy, and I got one when I finished the the quest with the Skeleton King. So I have two of this. I have two versions of this guy's crown. I'm just like, okay. I currently have a le- legendary piece of equipment that will, when I'm using my uh, my secondary attack, the one that takes uh, spirit energy called the Lashing Tail Kick. Uh-huh. It shoots fireballs that are extremely powerful. Nice. So I'm doing short-range damage, and I'm doing long-range damage that is shooting fireballs through, <laughs> that just carves their way through hordes of enemies. I can use this, like, blinding attack uh, that also slows enemies down. Uh, suffice it to say, and then I have the seven-strided strike, which does outrageous amounts of damage uh, to single targets. So suffice it to say, I'm... I'm really enjoying my the monk life. I don't think monk is the most powerful character by far. The last time I checked, actually, the mage was probably tended to be acknowledged as one of the, the most broken characters. Yeah, but they're mages. But they're always mages. Emily yeah. always played as a mage. Emily is my partner. Uh, she would do what we call the unibeam. <laughs> <laughs> she would just melt enemies with basically uh, with a ray of light. It, it was pretty great. She was shooting a fireball. I just find using uh, mages so boring. Yeah, I find it really boring, too. That's why I never play as a mage. Yeah. just uh, Someday I'm going to play as a barbarian. I've never gotten around to the barbarian. I've been the crusader. I've been the demon hunter. I've been a monk. But I have never been uh, the barbarian or anything like that. Yeah, I was, uh, when I was kind of picking through the classes the first time, I was thinking, eh, if this is a beginner, should I do Barbarian? But then it's like, no, that's boring. Then I, I was considering Monk, because I always did, like, Monk characters. Then I saw the Demon Hunter, I'm like, well, undecided. I tried the Necromancer. Did you get a chance to try the Necromancer? No, but I saw them as well. The Necromancer was DLC that was released last year. Uh-huh. And, uh, 
So I didn't get a chance to play that far into it. Like, I think I was level 20 when I actually ended up rolling the monk. Uh-huh. Because um, I I accidentally made the necromancer a guy. And I was kind of annoyed by that because I didn't want my necromancer to be a guy. But uh, the main thing that's kind of fun, at least in the early going, is you can summon, for example, you can summon a golem monster. Uh-huh. And have it run, command it to run into a pack of enemies and uh, explode into a bunch of corpses. And then you can make the corpses explode and take out huge swaths wow. of bad guys. That sounds really cool, actually. It's really great when you're leveling up less good uh, later on. But mm-hmm. I don't know what the optimal build uh, for the Necromancer is. But anyway, so Nadia, I don't know how familiar you are but Diablo with the history of Diablo 3. But it's changed a lot over the years. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I've heard about that. How I remember when Diablo 3 first came out, it wasn't, I don't want to say it was panned, but it wasn't as well received. Like, I remember it, it faced a lot of criticism. I reviewed it back in the day. Oh, for when who? When I was a freelancer. Oh. I probably should not have reviewed that game because I did not know nearly enough about Diablo to really make an educated oh. opinion about the series. I was coming at it into it with very fresh eyes at the time. And I uh-huh. did not appreciate at that time how much it ruined the end game oh really yeah it really did because it didn't have stuff like the adventure mode the loot was kind of all wrong the it had this uh real world auction house which oh yeah kind of took away a lot of the joy of finding the best loot finding the best characters um it's been funny over the years to watch the ways in which Blizzard has basically dialed back every major decision that they've made with Diablo 3. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, the crux of Diablo 3 was when you finished the game, you went up to a higher difficulty level, and then you played through the campaign again. And you just mm-hmm. kept doing that. Oh, interesting. But you yeah, mentioned so like many the of the mode. randomly generated elements of Diablo 2 were not present. Uh-huh. Uh, like the randomly generated dungeons and that kind of thing. And people really did not like that. And it was online only, which people also oh. really did not like. Right, and that I remember. So Blizzard walked that back as well, and that kind of opened the door for Diablo 3 to succeed on the Switch, because now you can play it anywhere. Like, I played it uh-huh. religiously. Like, I played it like crazy. Um, I was in Seattle this past weekend, and I just played it through my entire train uh, plane trip while listening to podcasts. It is an amazing podcast game. Yeah, I actually, it's funny, I just played it yesterday while uh, a lot of Toronto was without internet because someone cut a freaking cord somewhere, so I was without internet for most of the day, and I was just like, oh, play Diablo, and yeah, it tells you you have no internet connection, but it doesn't matter, you can still play. Yeah, it's pretty great. I think the things that Diablo 3 kind of gets right is, in a elemental way, it is just really satisfying to get the right build and then watch enemies kind of crumble to dust in front of you and i'm sure you're probably seeing that now that you're kind of in your your (laughs) mid-20s yeah when you say it like that it sounds like uh oh geez i'm not that old but um yeah i I, it's a very satisfying game to play but it's still challenging enough that i don't feel bored like you'll be kind of in the middle of a, a mob and all of a sudden one of the uh the characters with the yellow outline will come after you and they won't die (laughs) <laughs> and they'll keep sending minions after you. So there's mm-hmm. plenty of surprises in Diablo 3. The thing that hardcore players like to do is they play on a seasonal basis. So every season, they roll up a new character, get them to level 70, and then try to build 
the most efficient build possible to go run through the hardest dungeons called, I think, Great Rifts or something to that effect. Oh, and okay. I was wondering what that season was. That thing was. Yep, and then they try to get as high as possible on the leaderboards. Hmm. Cool. Yeah. So that's the the replayable element of Diablo Three. I don't think I'm that hardcore, but <laughs> at uh, in the short term, at least, I do want to try and get my monk as high as possible, um, and then perhaps roll a new character at some point and do it again. Do it again, mm-hmm. again and again and again, again and again and again and again and again. No. <laughs> uh, have you played a seasonal character? Because it's funny when you first be- uh, boot up the game, they're like they kind of give you that seasonal option. But I was confused until I noticed, oh, I can start a, a quote unquote normal game, and that's what I went for. Obviously, I mean, I've just been playing in adventure mode and running through the quests in that area. Uh, perhaps next time I will roll up a proper seasonal character. Hmm. Hmm. So a lot of people would say that Path of Exile has surpassed Diablo 3 in many respects. It is a perhaps deeper game. Um, They go even deeper with the seasonal aspects. Uh, It famously has the most enormous uh, progression tree. Um, eh, But it's not on Nintendo Switch, and I can't play it portably. Yeah, so uh, Diablo 3 wins. (laughs) I guess. There was a pretty good troll where uh, there was a site called PlayDiablo4.net, and it redirected to Path of Exile's website. (laughs) (laughs) Path of Exile's on Xbox One now. It's coming on PS4 soon. So it's it's cutting in there. Mm -hmm. It's filling the gap left by uh, Diablo 4 in the same way that Torchlight was able to fill the gap left by Diablo 3 while everybody was waiting for Diablo 3 to come out. Uh, yeah, by all accounts, if you want an even deeper experience, then Path of Exile is your game. But in the short term, man, uh, Diablo 3 on Switch, it's grand. Blizzard really understands that whole, uh, just makes you feel good to play the kind of game. The art mm-hmm. is really good. It's now matured to a point where I would say that it is a legitimately great game. Like, it is managed to kind of get past a lot of the problems that it originally had. And so certainly if you've never played Diablo three before, uh, get, get a copy with your couple copies, uh, with your loved one and play it and you'll be shocked at how addictive it can be. Yeah. Um, this is my first, uh, go through and I don't regret it whatsoever. And we're not the only ones who love it. I'm pretty sure it's received like some pretty incredible reviews. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's because uh, Blizzard made the right decision, Nadia. They made the most crucial decision, and that was to basically lock it in at 60 frames per second on the Switch. Mm-hmm. Th- that and make an adventure mode available right out of the box. Like, that's the, the one-two punch. Like, you sacrifice a little bit of visual fidelity, but keeping the frame rate is so paramount, especially yes. when you're fighting such... Well, there's so much garbage on the screen at any given time. If it had slowed down... <laughs> it really even, is in any meaningful way, it would have been a lot less satisfying. And in fact, that was a problem, I think, with the PS3 version in particular, is that you would have slowdown. Right, I remember hearing about that. But no, there's I have not encountered any slowdown whatsoever on the Switch. Okay, so yeah, Diablo 3, available on the Nintendo Switch. Yes, it is $60. I think that it is probably <laughs> worth it, especially if you've never played it. If you've played it a uh, mm-hmm. hundred times uh, already... <laughs> Uh, like maybe I have. Um, well, that's more of a judgment call as to whether or not you want that portable kind of experience. But I know that 
it is the single most pick up and play kind of Nintendo Switch experience I've managed to have since I don't know Stardew Valley. Where yeah, it's just you're like, right. That's oh, I'll pick it up, it. do something for five minutes, put it back down. Okay, so we are going to continue on to our top twenty five RPG segment. So don't go away. All right, joining me now is Matthew Allen, who is often on Laser Time. Matthew Allen has been on the podcast before, most recently when you were on the panel with me talking about Mass Effect over at PAX, and that was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, we had the awkward moment where we all walked watched a sex scene together. That was fun. <laughs> that wasn't awkward. We all had a blast. It was bonding. It was definitely it was, bonding. Uh, that, that was the highlight of my year, watching that entire thing and listening to the crowd <laughs> react. I loved it. But I brought Matt on because we are continuing our top 25 RPG countdown. And the next one on the list is number 11. And it is another open world RPG from Bethesda. See if you recognize this game. right number 11 on our list is elder scrolls morrowind which came out in 2002 on the pc and xbox considered by many to be the finest entry in the elder scrolls series and maybe one of the reasons that i always get kind of wound up when i look at (laughs) certain other rpg lists and I see that they've put Skyrim at the very top. Uh, hello, it's not even the best game in its own series, Matt. Uh, I actually agree with you. Yeah, I am not one of the people that regards Morrowind as the best Elder Scrolls. I oh oh, which one I, is the best? Is it Daggerfall? I I give that title no to Oblivion. Like people what? don't talk about Oblivion anymore. Oblivion's the worst one. Oblivion is not the worst one. What what? <laughs> Sir Patrick Stewart and I disagree with you there. It's worse than Morrowind or Skyrim. No, no, I think it it took, I think what Oblivion did, and this is coming from primarily a console gamer, so take that as a caveat, right, to all you PC folks, um, but the promise of Morrowind, of a true open world Western RPG on console, they didn't quite get there, like it was still, it was so, but it was the first time I've ever had a console game completely hard crash my console that I had to reset everything. Um, but Oblivion, I think, was the first that truly fulfilled that promise and kind of brought that series over to consoles. Like I know Morrowind was that first stepping stone. It was it was rough. Like they, let's just say they slipped on that stepping stone, but Mar- I think Oblivion nailed it. Uh, and to me, it will always hold a special place in my heart. I mean, what other game lets you go through these weird rifts and then there it's I they didn't they might not have been procedurally generated but it sure felt that way you would just fight demons in alternate dimensions and come back and do everything that you wanted to and then go bet on yourself at the gladiatorial arena come on oblivion was great uh, so much so much of it was a slog and the rifts were at the central of it whereas i the reason i put morrowind on this list is it feels like the last time we really saw bethesda come close to hitting maybe on the promise of having a really deep, crunchy, interesting RPG. 
it was at a certain intersection of the history of Bethesda. And after Morrowind, they kind of pivoted and started focusing far more on more casual audiences. They were starting to do that with Morrowind, but Morrowind, first of all, has the best story out of all of them. And second of all, it has far deeper mechanics. The the way that the guilds interact with, with one another is far more interesting. And yeah, <laughs> it looks rough now, but I think it's just far and away better than either Skyrim or Oblivion. So, But let's talk I a mean, little bit about Morrowind, shall we? Let's talk it, a little it has bit gi- about... It has giant it, mushrooms. The other two don't have giant mushrooms. I'll give you that. This is a fact. This is a fact. <laughs> so Morrowind... Um, not the first game in the series, but I, I'm going to wager that for a lot of console gamers, it was the first one that a lot of them picked up because before that we had Elder Scrolls Arena and Daggerfall, which were PC RPGs, and I would say fairly hardcore PC RPGs at that. Matt, did you ever get a chance to play them? No, I, I and before Morrowind came out, I didn't know what Elder Scrolls was. It wasn't really a thing to me. I think I think both games you just mentioned are more oddities that most people probably maybe tried to approach after playing Morrowind or Oblivion. Um, because, yeah, and then they are such different games than, than Morrowind. I didn't realize that Morrowind was actually related to Daggerfall because... I knew about Daggerfall back in the day, but it was always just referred to as Daggerfall, much as Skyrim is referred to as Skyrim. It's not called Elder Scrolls Skyrim, right? So it was was some surprise many years later that I learned that Daggerfall was part of the series. And my main memory of Daggerfall was uh, I never played it, but I all I ever read about was how buggy it was, which uh, the, it's a Bethesda tradition. They... They love to create these massive, massive worlds and perhaps overreach a bit in their ambition. And that was certainly the case in the 90s. Massive worlds with massive amounts of of systems. And I think really it's the systems all overlapping with each other that it usually results in those bugs or as I like to refer to it. And and one of my favorite parts of these games is the jankiness, Uh, because those systems, when they all go together, yes, they can cause crashes, but they can also cause some hilarious moments of things like cows up on the roofs of your settlements in Fallout 4 or... uh, you know, other things like that. Like, so you combine open world where these are sandbox games with an abundance of systems. And what do you get? You get a perfect recipe for jank. And I love it. You also get tons of memes and gifts uh, that I will just eat those up because they're amazing. That's part of the charm, right? I mean, I think people, people complain all the time about Skyrim's bugs, but in a way, I think that has also pushed its popularity because the more ridiculous elements are the ones that get shared all the time and people are like, I have to play this game. It's so ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like, what do you expect? In a game that lets you do pretty much anything you want, that you're willing to exchange. So that freedom with it comes, you know, it's a bit of a trade-off. You're like, well, of course things are going to break occasionally because what other game lets me roll giant wheels of cheese down a mountain uh, and and see the repercussions of that? Like nothing, nothing else does that. So uh, lead designer Ken Rolston said once, the goal of every Elder Scrolls game is to create something that resembles a pen and paper RPG on the computer. And indeed, the Elder Scrolls Arena was based in part on the, I believe, the D&D campaign 
for the elders uh, for the Bethesda team. That's where I got to start. <clears throat> and Morrowind, I think, is the last game in the series to really capture that extremely crunchy kind of D and D focused uh, aspect. Um, in the subsequent entries, I I kind of feel like the the rougher edges would eventually get sanded away and it would lose a little bit of its heritage and become something else, I, perhaps. But I would say Morrowind and Daggerfall and Elder Scrolls Arena have deep hooks in the kind of 1980s tradition of PC RPGs like Ultima 5 and that kind of thing, where you're exploring a large world, you can talk to people and have extensive conversations, you can pick up every... You can pick up pretty much everything, and pretty much everything is of interest. So, Yeah, as I like to call these games sometimes, these are mule simulators more than games <laughs> at times. Because uh, most of my time spent in any Elder Scrolls or Fallout title is just inventory management. It's like, oh, uh, now I'm, I'm bogged down. I, I, my, my encumbrance is too high. What can I get rid of versus what is going to uh, net me tons of coin when I sell it uh, at a shop or a local fence? So... Last, or the last entry on this series was Knights of the Old Republic, and we were talking a little bit about how Knights of the Old Republic was a, a formative moment for the original Xbox, because with KOTOR, um, that was one of the first instances in which BioWare came over to consoles and introduced people to the joy of PC RPGs. Mm-hmm. And it was much the same with Morrowind. Bethesda, before up until that point, primarily a console developer. This was the first time, I believe, that uh, The Elder Scrolls ever made it onto console and as a consequence found uh, a whole new audience. Uh, out of curiosity, Matt, what drew you uh, to Morrowind? Did you play it at launch? I did uh, on Xbox, like I mentioned, because I was, I was, you know, I've, I've delved into being a PC gamer every now and then, but really, it, you know, I am a console gamer at heart. Um, and so what really drew me to this is that promise and, and kind of what uh, the, the head designer, is it Ken Ralston, uh, was saying. It's, it's that open-ended nature and the ability to do or try anything because console RPGs up until that point, um, you know, primarily... They were it was, it was a lot of JRPGs, you know, which are very much like we're going to put you on the story track, and uh, a lot of your agency is mostly with character progression, and, and maybe you're investing. Where am I placing my orbs to power up certain magical spells? Um, so Morrowind certainly has all of that, but in addition, it also gives you the ability and freedom. Like you can go anywhere you want in this world, and and even the the main plot, you can you can sort of do some things in any order you wish, which. As someone who grew up playing D and D, there was a ton of appeal. Like to me, that was always the that was always the goal of RPGs, uh, video games was was to try to approximate what you could get in a truly good D and D session. And I think uh, that promise got its hooks in. I mean, even even the way progression works in this game is very D and D. It's like you have your attribute points, which are you know like strength, intelligence. And then you have skills and those skills are, are driven by like they're tied to like a main attribute point, you know, so uh, physical skills might be tied to strength, you know, which which totally makes sense. But then the way this game did leveling was so unique. And so, to be honest, like for min maxers, it was exploitable where the way you had to level up was ever like, so exploitable. <laughs> yeah, it, it, you would you had to level up. um major or minor skills and that would would cause your level to go up and then depending on the number of times you were able to 
level up that skill, that would apply the an exponential bonus to your attribute points. And so it became a game of, okay, well, I'm going to level up these all these other underling skills, which are going to feed into my attribute points, and then hit those skills that will cause my level to go up eventually. And and I just even love is so dumb. Like the way you level up skills, though, is just repetition. So what it resulted in was a ton of hopping around maps or, you know, sneaking everywhere you could because everything was just, well, you get better with practice. Um, but it, it, I loved it because it was like, you know what? Fine. If I want to take the time and sneak everywhere uh, and get my sneaking skill up, a game should allow me to do that. And, and I think a lot of what makes games like uh, Divinity Original Sin and Original Sin 2 popular is that that freedom and that ability to break anything. And that's really what the the Elder Scrolls and Fallout games have been doing for several years. And it's just so good that that promises, you know, which is, by the way, also also partially rooted in those old CRPGs you're mentioning, you know. Uh, so that open-ended nature uh, realized in a full 3D environment uh, told from that first-person point of view uh, that to me was was a super compelling reason to jump in to this series that I'd, I'd never heard of. Reading about the history of uh, Morrowind's development, it, apparently it was originally supposed to be closer to Daggerfall in scope, and Daggerfall was absolutely immense, like to the point of being completely ridiculous. Uh, and apparently Bethesda was investigating having a multiplayer extension, so Fallout 76 before Fallout 76, am I right? But uh, Yeah, true, true, true. It ended up being too big, so it has scaled back. And that, to me, like always tells me that Bethesda's eyes are always a little bit bigger than, I guess, their stomach. Like They always think, oh, we want to do everything. We want to throw the friggin' kitchen sink into it. And that's why their games tend to be a little rougher. But one of the reasons that Morrowind is still uh, pretty beloved by a contingent is that yeah, it's smaller than Skyrim or Oblivion, but it's also tighter in many ways. And a lot of people uh, consider the campaign in particular to be just kind of the right length. It has uh, a deeper story, that kind of thing. And uh, in making it smaller, it feels denser and more interesting. Yeah, and, and I will say, um, I think I would generally regard Morrowind as like, the, it's sort of like the the black sheep uh, or the dark sheep, if you will, because it is tied to the dark elves of that universe uh, of the series because it's so weird, like just the environments and things like that. But you're right, like in terms of the actual campaign and plot, it does seem more realized than even like the games that followed it. Then again, plot has never been like, for me at least, like the primary draw of a Bethesda game. And in fact, the, the designer, the way he describes it, he's like, well... The main plot is really just sort of a framing device to introduce you to all of these factions, uh, you know, like the Thieves Guild or the Assassin's Guild, or to introduce you to like main characters throughout the world. And then, you know, it is what you make of it. But at the same time, uh, I think then it it started to fall into what is now become like an RPG trope of there's there's really no urgency. It's like, hey, uh, the world is coming to an end or you must defeat this, defeat this dark god. But you can go over here and, uh, you know, go buy things for your house in game in the meantime. And, and, and so it's like they set up this big grandiose plot that for the most part you can ignore until you want to get around to it, um, which is it's almost comical in a way. And, and I'm fine with that because I like all the fiddly stuff uh, and going on all those side missions and, and really just, you know, having a game 
completely take up all of my time. But uh, but yeah, you're right. This game does feel smaller uh, and kind of more boiled down than, than other Elder Scrolls games to its benefit. Yeah, doing my research for this, I remember seeing somebody say something to the effect of, I was going around and talking about about how amazing Morrowind is, and then I realized I hadn't actually been doing the main quest. Yep, that's right. I, I, I'm i very much of that vein where most of my memories of Morrowind are spent doing stupid things, like side things that I just couldn't believe I could do. Um, because, I mean, for those who never played this, this, the characters in this world, this was before I think Oblivion really gave them kind of like lives that they could live, where they, they had some basic AI where they weren't, repeating things. I want to say in Morrowind though, there was kind of a clockwork to the world where if you if you took the time and stood around outside of a town for a couple in-game days on end, you would eventually start seeing the people doing the same things over and over. Uh, and I, I actually recall that was sort of tied to one of the qu- side quests of the game. I don't know why this stands out in my memory, but it was a thing where something had been stolen and you had to you wait around near this hollowed out tree stump to see who the thief was that was going to check on it. And and like clockwork, they would they would show up at a certain time each night or something like that. And I just remember like sitting and just waiting. And there was nothing you could do but wait. And then ultimately finding out who it was and being like, ha ha, I caught you. Um, Marwin was full of moments like that uh, to the point where it's like, oh, yeah, what was that about again? Oh, there was some rogue god that I had to go after with the tribunal. Like what? Like... <laughs> Yeah, and then so, the tribunal has popped like those characters. They've been in all the other Morrowind games to the point where the names are all very familiar. But I, it was like, oh yeah, I've been hearing those for years. I don't know where from, and, and then I re- realized, oh yeah, they were from Morrowind. Well, let's talk about the plot just a little bit. Uh, I think what's interesting about the plot is the way it's the way it, it's kind of similar to Skyrim in some ways and different in others. So much like Skyrim. Um, Morrowind takes place in an area that is occupied by the Empire, and there is a, a tension between the Empire and the locals, who are the uh, the Dunmer, mm-hmm. um, who are in yeah. conflict with the, the Empire after losing their independence, much like the Nords. Not sure they're as racist as the Nords. Well, I think uh, that's always been an Elder Scrolls staple, is depending on the race you choose, yeah, other people will treat you like the other. Um, yeah, they really don't like Argonians, I guess. Yeah, yeah, well, they, they come from, like, the poison swamp. They're kind of like the Floridians of the Elder Scrolls world. They come from the swamps. <laughs> Florida man, Morrowind. <laughs> and then there's the Khajiit, uh, which are, like, the cat people. Uh, and then the Dunmere, though, are, like, yeah, they're they're elves, but they're dark elves, you know? So they can and, – and I think the thing about their race is – they have um, like a bad omen is 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 a, what it refers to, or like they have a an ill fate. That might be the exact wording they use to refer to that race. And so it's like, what does that mean? I don't know, but that does not sound good. So it's like an ill fated race who, uh, like a lot of high fantasy, I believe the dark elves broke off from their their ancestors were the Chimer elves, uh, which which were like the original high elves who then split and you have all these factions of elves. And I think the different types of elves don't really like each other and some think they're better than others. It's it's very like standard higher, you know, high fantasy stuff. Yeah, uh, the plot revolves around conflicts between the gods and that kind of thing. But I, I think the thing that stands out to me the most is you as a character are going through and completing these major quests to try and make a prophecy come true. And the prophecy is that you are, you know, you're the chosen one. But 
The difference between Morrowind and Skyrim is that in Skyrim, you're basically proclaimed the chosen one immediately. You're the dragonborn. You're the dragonborn in the first 15 minutes. Whereas Mm. in this game, you spend the entire game earning that status, convincing people that you deserve this status. And even then, it is left open to debate about whether or not the prophecy is accurate. Um, Heather Alexander from uh, Kotaku wrote an article saying that uh, her favorite moment was that was the moment when you have a chance to basically say, who are you? And you can list knock off several elements i'm the hero of legend or whatever or you could just say like i don't know i don't know if i'm truly the hero but it doesn't matter like because i've decided to take on this mantle i think that is a very mature ahead of its time view on like your your, you know it's a way of turning standard rpg tropes on their head like in most rpgs you are some uh, elite chosen like you know um and this game is like well maybe you are it's up to you do you want to believe you are or not because I, I feel like if that happened in real life, that's exactly how it would go down. It would be very much be a Life of Brian moment where some people would say, oh, you are this chosen, this destined person that we're here in all these prophecies. And then you're going to choose, well, do I kind of live out this life and fulfill these prophecies or do I go do my own thing? And, and so I think that was like, that's like really good storytelling way ahead of its time for what the rest of the industry was doing at the time. Additionally, in putting so much emphasis on the different guilds and everything, uh, rising up in a particular guild and uh, kind of choosing your profession feels and playing off against rival guilds. Um, I know that at, at certain points you'll be ordered to kill the leaders of other guilds, for example. It feels like you are having a, a real impact on the world and you are perhaps close, more closely tied to these factions than you are in kind of subsequent games. Um, out of curiosity, which, which guild did you end up going with? I, in every Elder Scrolls guild, or a game, I always end up with the Thieves Guild. I like the Thieves Guild because they are meant to be more noble. They're, they're more like Robin Hood than straight up just like burglars. Um, for the, I mean, maybe that's just my interpretation, and it varies slightly from game to game. Um, I, I tend to do that, although I always do love the Dark Brotherhood, like the Assassin's Guild in these games. And, and I think in Oblivion, that might be one of the best quest lines in that entire game. Um, it's the best quest line in every game. It was the best right. quest line in Skyrim as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And actually, I never got to experience it in Skyrim because one of those things, another mission brought me there uh, to their headquarters and some guys started attacking me on uh, on site. So I basically cleaned out the entire guild headquarters and killed everyone and so i never got to experience that which is like on one hand that's so awesome that a game can let me do that on the other hand it's such a bummer because those are the best quest lines yeah so yeah i agree in this game uh i th- I, I tend to go thieves guild you know that i mean that makes sense i think a lot of people end up going thieves guild just because i mean it's one of the early ones that you can usually find and it's just you know it's not too evil but there's a there is an out- outlaw aspect to it and, and it plays well with how I play these games. Like I mentioned, to me, sometimes they're like mule simulators. And so I do like to build up my ability to go in and, and steal things from houses like really powerful, uh, you know, potions or, or equipment. And so the Thieves Guild is is a nice complement to that play style. Although I don't, I don't usually play as a rogue. Uh, I guess this relates to, you know, progression in general in these games. I kind of play as a hybrid uber character uh, that is really good at a variety of things. You know, you, you have to be a good fighter. 
always just with any class. And so, and I, I tend to go melee. I don't mess around with, you know, bows and arrows. I play around with magic a bit in these games. Um, it always feels really imprecise and like landing hits is really difficult. And so I just tend to be like, yeah, I'm going to hit someone with my sword or my knife. Um, but for the other stuff in the games, I do tend to sneak around and steal as much stuff as I can, even from people that are supposed to be my friends in these games. It's like, well, he's not really going to miss this potion. Yeah, I'm, I'm, it's funny that you mentioned potions because mixing potions is a big part of this game. And I always thought it was pretty great that there's an exploit where you can really easily increase your intelligence. And the more you increase your intelligence, the better the potions you can make. And eventually you can increase your intelligence to the point where you're basically making completely absurd potions that are sending your your stats into the absolute freaking stratosphere. It feels like more than almost every game that came from it after it from Bethesda this is about making brokenly powerful builds and it's kind of fun in that regard yep I mean that's when I mentioned the the ability to min max and exploit the character progression there were a lot of little loopholes like that that because they gave you so much freedom uh, I'm sure this game had rigorous QA testing but they can't catch everything and so there were lots of lots of things like that where yeah you could just accidentally overpower a certain attribute and make yourself godlike which sort of fits in with the lore of this game because i mean you are working for the tribunal which were basically i think they were like elves that descended to godlike status if i remember correctly and you're killing gods too so you are the chosen one (laughs) that's right murdering dark gods um one of the things that uh, that's interesting to me is you can actually craft spells and there are a lot of different options in that regard um did you spend a lot of time crafting spells? I don't think I did in this game, um, but yeah, I do remember that ability where you could kind of just create these weird hybrid custom spells. Yes, that was a a fairly large component of the of the customization. Uh, so much. So I was talking to a friend of mine, and she was talking about why she loved Morrowind so much, and she had put like hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of hours into it. And she was talking about like how you didn't have the recipes in the game. And so you would have to like write them down and then there would be like dozens of recipes as opposed to like 10. And on the one hand, I'm like, wow, that's really cool. And then on the other hand, I'm almost kind of sitting here going, are we fetishizing like uh, inconvenience for the sake of inconvenience? Because like at the time it was harder to do things, therefore it was better. Yeah, I think if I remember correctly, because this is how Oblivion did it, where like certain components or items would have attributes that they could have certain spell effects uh, if you put them in a potion. And so it was like, that's how you would memorize and say, okay, well, I'm going to check out that, you know, this certain component has these three possible outcomes. And if I mix it with this, but yeah, you're right. It's, it's like, wow, we want ultra realism and so you know this wouldn't be done for you i'm like well no in real life i would have a cookbook right next to me and of course i'm gonna have the recipe like come on well the reason they didn't do it back then was because they didn't think to like it just hadn't really been thought of uh and over time uh game design has been sharpened and codified and made more convenient and on the one hand i i get the idea of you lose a little bit of that magic of discovery but on the other hand it can feel like when you don't have those conveniences, the game is wasting your time. I'm playing Red Dead Redemption 2 at I the moment. I was just about to say, that's you know, I have a great example of that. There's a game called Red Dead Redemption 2 that that's exactly, yeah, it's it's like 
you feel like it's not respecting your time, but really what they're doing is saying, no, no, we want you to live in and, and experience this world as if you're in the world. Uh, but we've just, as I think gaming audiences, we've grown so accustomed to things being done for us or having UI elements or tool tips for every little step of the way that it feels foreign to us now. But that would have very much been the model back when Morrowind was released is like, no, let's not hold their hands. Let's let's respect their intelligence and their ability uh, and their agency to do whatever they want uh, versus, no, no, we want to, uh, to keep reminding them what they should be doing. On that front, what's your take on the quest marker? Good thing, bad thing? Uh, so I think when you're talking about games that have certain levels of fidelity, and especially like I mentioned, I was on Xbox, so never going to get as good as, as PC fidelity, um, having to navigate based on environmental markers alone uh, is really tough. Uh, and so just kind of having people tell you head in this general direction uh, without a guiding arrow, I think, um, again, that's one of those things where they wanted to give you that freedom and that agency, uh, and the exchange was convenience, and I would have preferred convenience, especially in a world, I guess these were released before we had cell phones uh, that, you know, at our fingertips where we, we no longer have to remember even how to drive home because we have a map app that can help guide us no matter where we are, Um but back then, that wasn't necessarily the case. So, yeah, I mean, I can see why they did it. I think that's one of the first things, like, I would have tried to solve if I'm modding this game is like, hey, let's add some quest markers and arrows in here. Yeah, I think quest markers are one of the top mods for Fallout, or sorry, not Fallout, uh, Morrowind. I, I don't know. I'm kind of of two minds. On the one hand, I get really irritated when I can't find a quest marker in a, a, quest marker in a game now because I just want to get to the next quest and start it. But it strikes me that it's a really mechanical approach to game design, and it just has me running from point to point like I'm a robot or something like that. And I think that there is something to be said for kind of a more open-ended design in which I feel like I'm more organically making my way toward things. Um, It was pointed out to me, for example, that uh, quests would often be buried under layers of dialogue and like conversations and that kind of thing. It wasn't just like talk to the character, get your quest, go. Right? Like you're actually getting to know these characters in a way that feels a little more realistic, feels a little more lifelike. Um, for some reason, I was just thinking about Breath of the Wild, which I think kind of de-emphasized the quest marker aspect to a large extent. It was all about just kind of roaming the wilderness and. Going, what's over there? What's over there? Discovering yeah. things, right? I, I think you that's that's the key point and in, in games that that don't rely on fast travel, uh, they really are encouraging you to discover things along the way. And if nothing else, like that's what these Elder Scrolls games are really good at, is you're going to um, have what I, you know, I think the industry refers to these as emergent gameplay moments. Uh, these games are full of those. Uh, and even if it's not like a scripted event, like, oh, I stumbled upon, you know, like in Red Dead Redemption 2, you might stumble upon someone who needs help. And here it could just be, I stumbled upon a dungeon uh, as I was going to explore and, and, you know, on my way to this other quest. Um, sometimes, though, I think the risk there that you run is you can end up just feeling like, well, I found this other thing because I got lost on the way to where I was supposed to be heading. Uh, but I will say some of my favorite moments in uh, the sequel to Marwin and Oblivion were just finding new gen- dungeons, delving down and, and getting like a really awesome piece of gear that maybe was tied to a quest line that I just hadn't spoken to someone and gotten that quest yet. And they, But they let you do it. And, and then sometimes, you know, they would change the dialogue like, oh, 
well, you already did this thing I was going to go send you to do. Congratulations, you. Uh, so I, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So to me, I mean, that's great. That's like, yeah, that's how real life would work. It'd be like, oh, there's this family treasure buried in the hills. You mean, and you could be like, you mean this treasure? Uh, and so, you know, <laughs> I love like, that when I love that when it ha- that happens in a game. I'll yeah. return to a quest giver and I'll I'll just see quest complete already. I'm like, yes. Oh yeah, yeah. There's nothing that annoys me more than like. Like, I play a lot of Destiny 2, and so I get annoyed sometimes where it's like, oh, I forgot to accept that bounty. I've done all, I've met all the requirements for that bounty 10 times so far in this session, but because I didn't interact with one piece of UI, uh, yeah, I can't can't get my credit, if you will. So the last thing I kind of want to talk about is how, I, I think a lot of the people end up really liking Morrowind because it was so distinct uh, in compared to a couple of the later uh, Elder Scrolls games, um, like particularly Skyrim, which I think is a beautiful game in many respects, but also borrows, uh, traffics heavily on kind of traditional medieval imagery and uh, kind of that Nordic Lord of the Rings kind of look at times where mm. uh, Marwin was distinct. You got to say that. I mean, giant mushrooms and all that. It, it, when you do, When you look upon that land for the first time, it feels like you're in an on an alien world, it, it doesn't just kind of lift your typical fantasy tropes, your typical Western Europe medieval tropes. Oh, it's it's one of the most memorable things about that game. Is really the distinct monsters too. Yeah, the art style was I've never seen that done before. Um, where, yeah, it was, and I think that we, they were able to accomplish that by basically placing you on an island. You know, whereas in the other games, it's it's technically, I guess, they're linked to this main, the continent of Tamriel, if you will. Um, and there's, you know, sometimes they'll come up with excuses for why you can't leave this certain section. Um, but yeah, you're right. While like, you know, Skyrim is famous for being very much like the the Rohirrim area of Lord of the Rings, you know, where it's kind of Norse inspired and, and all of this. Um, yeah, here, I, I've never, I can't think of like a fantasy setting like this, where it's this, these poisonous swamp type areas with these weird mushroom things i i I just remember the overall color palette for this game feeling very green and brown (laughs) you know like lots of that and yellow and yes yes absolutely um and it was yeah it's never been done before and never since uh other than if you count like the elder scrolls online which which had the morrowind expansion which skyrim had a had morrowind dlc as well i think oh okay well uh, which I think Oblivion had an island that was like that. It was the the Mad God's Island, um, which to me felt a lot like Morrowind. Yeah. I I think two things stand out to me about Morrowind's kind of, you know, world building. First, it was kind of the last... Uh, it, it was Bethesda really striking out and making their own look and making their own world and building upon what they had done in Daggerfall in Arena in a graphics engine that was so much more advanced and thus could really put forward its world in an interesting way in a way that they hadn't done. Like we look back now and you go, oh, it doesn't really, the graphics don't hold up. But at the time they were quite amazing. And this was a chance for Bethesda to really come into its own from that perspective. Another thing was they really go crazy with the lore in this game. If you are yes. really into lore, like supposedly PC Gamer figured out that it was the in-game text was equal to like six like 
typical sized novels. Like there are tons of books just lying around. Like if you really want to go crazy with the lore of Morrowind, it's all freaking there. So the upshot of all of this to me is that this was kind of the last time that Bethesda like was still tied to those roots of the pen and paper RPG we're just having so much fun creating all of our lore and all of our characters and all of our world. And I feel like Oblivion and Skyrim in particular have been running on the fumes of that ever since. I I think, yeah, with the lore, uh, you're absolutely right. Like, I feel like Morrowind laid that foundation that the other games, um, they kind of, if you, they, they almost expect you to know about a lot of the the gods of of you know they're, they're the pantheon of this world uh, exists. They were kind of established in Morrowind. Where I mean, I didn't play Daggerfell or Arena, so maybe they they talked about those before. But most people's first exposure uh, to a lot of this lore was Morrowind, and yeah, it's it's you know they are they're definitely kind of on that same track. Like they're they're in that continuity that everything really started with Morrowind. I just wanted to go back really quickly uh, about the tech thing you mentioned and point out um, this was. That was probably the reason this game wasn't Xbox exclusive. I mean, it was PC and only Xbox could really run that game. The PS2 could not run a game like Morrowind, uh, at least if the marketing was to be believed. And and I feel like Xbox did this a few times where it was like, yeah, we are the only system that can run uh, a game of, you know, that, that that is this technically complex. All right. So one thing that we always do with these top 25 RPG moments or top 25 RPGs is that we always share our best moments. And so here for me is the best moment of Morrowind. It's actually the beginning. And it has a thing called what I would call the Bethesda reveal, which is in every single Bethesda game, there's always that moment when you step into the world for the first time. And the way that they usually do it is you're in a vault or you're in like some dingy area, prison, whatever. And then you step through the doors and you're looking upon the world for the first time. And it really impresses upon you how vast everything is. And it makes you Mm -hmm. want to strike off. They've really perfected the formula. And I feel like Morrowind is the first time that you really see that kind of enforced because you start in like kind of the dark and like dingy hold of a ship, right? And then when you step out onto the deck for the first time, you're looking out on the waves. Uh, For the time, the water is incredibly detailed. You're seeing this crazy alien landscape. And it, Bethesda's really, they're the true masters of the reveal. Yeah, that's become a staple of the franchise. You always start as this prisoner uh, that that, um, gets released or, or escapes somehow. Um, I mean, it's it's not as good as when Sir Patrick Stewart uh, assists you uh, in in Oblivion, but no, um, it's funny. I got a little worried when you said the beginning. I was like, oh no, that was my best moment. But mine is even before that. Uh, my oh. favorite moment of this game is after buying it, just going through the manual and realizing how much there was to this game, and getting that that good anxiety of oh my goodness, am I going to pick the right type of character to create? Which race should I be? Which class should I start as? Um, Just all of that, like I would call it like healthy anxiety. It's like that anticipation of a new toy to play with and realizing like, oh my gosh, maybe I'll have to re-roll my character after creating one and playing for an hour because it's not the thing. Um, That to me is is always been one of my favorite elements of Bethesda games because it relates to that promise I was discussing earlier. Like 
you can do anything to the point where you can mess yourself up. Like if you if you do certain things or roll the wrong character, you might get stuck with it. Although with this progression, they then let you kind of eh, create any kind of character you want. And like I say, I kind of create this uber hybrid character. But I just remember like being just intimidated by the number of systems and then, you know, reading about this and then reading online, like in guides and stuff, even before starting to play it, just that anticipation to me. Oh man, I wish I could recapture that. It, it was so thrilling just to be like, I've never been able to do this on a console game. Uh, and this is, this was the dream that I always wanted. That burning anxiety that comes with designing a character or building a team to me shows that you're invested in the game and that's mm-hmm. kind of what you want, right? You don't want to be doing everything by rote. You want your decisions to matter. And so from the very first minute, Marwin feels like you, it makes your decisions feel like they matter. Yep. Even for me, from the minute, the minute of just buying the game before even putting it in and playing it, like I was invested, like, man, they got me hook, line and sinker. Like I was invested in that thing before I even turned it on. That's insane. All right, final thoughts on Morrowind. I think it's super important, uh, as I mentioned, in that it was, I would say, along with KOTOR, like one of the transitions of traditionally like PC RPGs or PC type RPGs coming to console. And to, to me, it will always hold a special place just because of that. It was... It was the first, and yeah, while there were some hiccups, and and technically it introduced a few things like crashes that I'd just never seen on a console before, (laughs) um, I think that's okay. Like, you're going to, you know, to make an omelet, you're going to have to break a few eggs, and they broke a few eggs, eggs that you could then collect and cook and use and and maybe put into, you know, health poultices and whatever, you know, like, they gave you the freedom to do that. And to me, um, that is why people continue to to buy in and get invested in these Bethesda games because it's it's really that promise. It's like, hey, this is this is the game you make of it and the world you make of it and the character you make of it. And to me, that's that's a very special thing uh, that RPGs really hadn't done before then, and they've only continued to expand on that model. I look at Morrowind uh, and I, it's with a tinge of sadness because it's it's much the same as Kotor in that Bioware and Bethesda, I think, really kind of started to hit it big with these respective games. And then they would really hit it big with Oblivion and Mass Effect. And it changed them in a lot of ways. Uh, I think that the the thrill, the, the, the pen and paper crunchy design became a little more cynical, a little more consumer-facing. Um, they sanded away the rough edges... Uh, they were going more for uh, impress, like superfi- being superficially impressed by the world than delving into the details. And I think that Skyrim is still an excellent RPG in many respects, but it doesn't kind of have the same hold on me as, say, Morrowind. And I have to say the same for a lot of the later Bioware RPGs. And... So in that respect, I think that if there were any game that I would love to see remastered or remade from Bethesda, it would definitely be Morrowind. But of course, I would be concerned that you would ultimately lose a lot of the a lot of the originals kind of rough charm, which would be uh, too bad. I just I, I suppose the final word that I would say for Morrowind is they don't make them like they don't make them like that anymore. At least Bethesda doesn't. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. And I think, I think they exchanged a lot of those rough edges and those systems you're mentioning, uh, 
where they, they might've smoothed all that out, but they had to have something to replace it. And it was just sheer content, you know, cause obviously Oblivion and Skyrim, those are, those are giant, like bigger games, but I kind of like that Marwin is a bit more focused and the depth really is more in that progression and how you're playing it. And they've come to lean so heavily on mods and modding the modding community to kind of fill in the gaps over the years. Um, Whereas while Morrowind has a very strong modding community and certainly like you recommend it, it doesn't feel like Skyrim in the sense of for a lot of people to truly turn Skyrim into a good game, you need this mod, this mod, this mod, this mod, this mod, and this mod to change up the mechanics almost completely. Yeah, you need you need to make your Macho Man Randy Savage monsters roam the world. Come on, let's be honest. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. Morrowind is number 11 on our top 25 RPG list. Make sure to go check out the entire list on US Gamer ongoing. And also, I mean, if you've been subscribing to Acts of the Blood God, uh, all of the previous entries are on our podcast feed. Matt, thanks for coming on the show. Promote something. Sure, you can check me out on Vigigame Apocalypse, part of the Laser Time Network of podcasts. Uh, we're at vigigameapocalypse.com. We do a show every Friday that's, let's call it a lighthearted, perhaps even ribald, look at uh, video games in the video game industry. Uh, and I am joined there by hosts Chris Antista and Michael Rapares. So check us out, vigigameapocalypse.com. That's Vija, V-I-D-J-A. What's ribald, you say? <laughs> ah, we swear a lot in our show. <laughs> something ribald no doubt true all right we're heading on to do the mailbag and thanks matt for coming on the show thanks cat Okay, Nadia, as always, we're going to continue on with our mailbag. And last week we talked about our five favorite RPG cowboys, which included the likes of Flint and Irvin Kinius from Final Fantasy VIII. And here's what Nightrunner99 said. They said, you talk about Japanese interpretation of the American cowboy, and I think Rafer Luckberry from Atelier Esha and Logie Alchemist of the Dark Sky... <laughs> Is a perfect representation of this. The English voice actor for this character goes all out in this game. It would be great if you and Nadia could talk about lesser-known RPGs like the Atelier series or others. Esha and Logi is a pretty good game, and I say this as someone who doesn't have a lot of patience for most anime-style JRPGs. Nadia, I will say that the one time that I really got into an Atelier game, which was like Rorona back in the day, I enjoyed it. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, I, I take it you've never played an Atelier game? I have never played it. Uh, Atelier. How's it pronounced? Atelier. 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 Yeah, no, it's a it's I, a dating sim. It's a dating oh, sim okay. class plus uh, meets gathering kind of sim where you're uh, basically just crafting different things uh, from the stuff that you gather on dungeon runs. In the meantime, meeting hot boys. Oh well, that sounds pretty. That sounds pretty cool, actually. I should really <laughs> yes. give that a try. I'd probably like yeah, it. Uh, you might like it. Rider Kicker says, I skipped three confidants in Persona 5 in my first playthrough because what matters is powering up your character's stats. Cat, you should have gotten a save from Nadia and did her second playthrough because it totally rocks. If you haven't finished yet, I highly recommend skipping the devil and the fortune teller because the shogi girl in the church just rocks. 
I also waited to fish, and it's pretty interesting how it's different, done. Different than P4 and Yakuza 0. Easier than FF15, by the way, though. Night to Train, get Nadia the Sakura Wars game for the PS2. Uh, okay, well, I am actually friends with the Shogi girl in the church, and I agree, she does she's rock. She's great. And I totally want she's to She's amazing. Yeah. yeah. No, she's, uh, she's, I'm trying to remember if she was the, was it chess that she's teaching you how to play? No, she's teaching you how to play Go. Right. She's okay. Play, she's teaching you how to play Shogi, which might be different than Go. Anyway. Yeah. yeah so she's teaching you, she's teaching you the Japanese game, the, the great Japanese game. Yeah. Shogi. No, that was, she's, she's great. Very, uh, very down to earth. Let's, let's call her. I am the Shogi girl in the church. <laughs> do, you, do you think so? Yes, I am the girl who would sit alone trying to get, like, relentlessly practicing at a game, trying to get better at it, except instead of playing Aww. Shogi, I play video games. See, I wasn't, I wasn't too mad much like that. I just, I just get mad at something and stop doing it. Oh, you gotta persist, Nadia. Yeah, I was never very good at persisting. You millennials, not persisting. Oh, I know. Wait, I'm older than you. Victor Hunter says, I'm so happy that Gemini Sunrise got some love. Sakura Wars 5 was woefully underappreciated, and anyone who loves turn-of-the-century steampunk musical theater dating sim Japanese folklore strategy RPGs <laughs> should pick it up before it becomes impossible to find. Yeah, I was gonna say, we did give some love to lesser-known RPGs. For God's sake! Sakura Wars 5, man! Yeah, you know... You- Oh, man, Victor's got to come back to Toronto so we can, like, have lunch again. Uh, and they have two recommendations for RPG count, uh, Cowboys. Uh, extremely Casey Kasem, Casey Kasem Countdown Voice. Number two is The Sundown Kid from Live a Live. Game is uneven and oh. janky, but it's a real good time. One of the best chapters is a Western section, which throws out most of the RPG system and instead revolves around a lone gunman, Rolling into a town that's about to be ransacked by a gang. And number one is Solar Boy Django from Boktai. Yeah. Boktai is the best stealth action vampire slaying spaghetti western RPG you will ever play. Nadia, you seem to like Boktai. Um, I appreciate what it is, but I never got to play it because I never... I, I just love how it's such a... is built around the original generation Game Boy Advance with the dark-ass screen no one could see, so... It was like, hey, here's the point The point of this game is to go out in the damn sunlight, get some vitamin D for a change. Donkey in the Forest says, I don't know if she's a cowboy, cowbot, maybe? But Piper Faraday from SteamWorld Heist was a really fun character in a Western-themed RPG. I really oh, liked yeah. that game. Customizing the characters was fairly straightforward, but also had the potential to dramatically change the ways you could play. A combination of turn-based gameplay and a combination with no-rush skill shots is the type of interesting twist that can bring in new mechanics into old genres. I mean, we freaking love SteamWorld Heist, don't we? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um, what do you call Piper uh, a cowgirl? I'm not sure what I'd call Cowbot. I mean, it's basically like Firefly, right? I mean... You're right. The Old West in space. Steam-powered giraffe singing in the old saloons. Yes. I mean, yeah. So, yeah, sure. I would totally call her... A, uh, a a bandit or yeah, yeah. a a mercenary who's wearing the the cowboy hat. That game is loves hats. That was my favorite. That game, the whole it. game, the whole game's thing was collect hats, and like it was so hilarious because I would put myself in the direct fire of an enemy just so I could get the hat because <laughs> he could shoot them off their heads, right? Yep. And he'd kind of just kind of slink into the battlefield and grab the hat that they drop. That was a Steam, great game. 
SteamWorld Heist is on like everything now, including Switch. I strongly recommend picking it up if you haven't played it already. Yeah. It is so good. Uh, any, any I, I was Steam consistently game, impressed. Any SteamWorld game is uh, worth a purchase and then some. The best thing about that, aside from the hats and the hilarious writing and the graphics, was that I kept expecting it to start becoming repetitive and samey, and it mm-hmm. never did. It kept no. adding new and interesting kind of wrinkles all the way through. Yes. No, I really enjoyed that game. That's a Anything by image and form is just great. Now I just need SteamWorld Steam Heist 2. Like, we got SteamWorld Dig 2. Give me SteamWorld Heist 2. Please put it I right agree. into my veins. Yeah. Yeah, I know they're working on something, so uh, soon, hopefully, we'll hear something. Fingers crossed. I always love that they SteamWorld Heist is in the same universe as SteamWorld Dig, but in the far future. Yeah, and that was a great thing about SteamWorld Dig, too, was finding out, okay, how the hell did this world blow up? And uh, you learn. You learn, indeed. Axel Bloodgod is a U.S. Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. Make sure to go check out... All of our great coverage on the website. Nadia, you wrote about how Delta Ruins Undertale 2 is a bait and switch. It's a superb piece of video game writing. Uh, we have, if you have a loved one in your life, I strongly recommend you, you go check out our holiday gift guide. It's gifts for gamers. Mm-hmm. And we have a whole mess of Red Dead Redemption 2 coverage, including the deadliest animals in RDR 2. Turns out they're all deadly. <laughs> they're all deadly. No, that's... Uh... I've seen the the video where like there's woman flags down the hero and like it's like oh can you help me my horse just died and I twisted my ankle and a deer just comes out of nowhere and plows her just sends her flying and I oh I the just deer was plowing her after eh? watching that <laughs> yeah there God. and oh, I talk about how Red Dead Redemption Two made me an accidental horror villain which. Uh, just mostly gave me an opportunity to Photoshop Michael Myers in a cowboy hat. That was a pretty good. That was a pretty good Photoshop, actually. Why? Thank you. Thank you very much. But continue following US Gamer for all of our coverage. And by the way, we are partnered with Red Dead Radio, which is by our friend Jared Petty. It's the Red Dead Radio focused video show slash podcast. I was on last week, and I was talking about all of my adventures slash misadventures in RDR two in. Somebody asked me what a, whether or not I thought uh, RDR2 is an RPG, and I had a response. So you should go check that out and see what my thoughts are on that. The video can be uh, follow, found on Hop, Skip, Hop, Blip, and a Jump, uh, the YouTube channel. Or you can go check out the Red Dead Redemption 2 Made Me an Accidental Horror Movie Villain uh, article, and you will find it embedded in there. Okay, Nadia will be back again next week, as always. But until then, thanks to Matt for coming on board. Thanks to Nadia, as always. And until next time, happy adventuring. <laughs>